sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Your favorite bands and songs, we discuss the rumor and innuendo that surrounds them. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. This is one about a band, a group of musicians that got people really riled up. Let's start this story at its most dramatic part, arguably. Um, The musician in question is in his bathrobe inside his own home. He hears a window break near the front door and suddenly nine... Not one, not two, nine cops have stored inside his house, and they start tearing things up. He will later describe it as, and I'm quoting him here, like you'd see the KGB do in a TV movie. <laughs> All right. He, he describes them going through his address book, page by page, comparing names. This is also a quote, while I sat there on a chair with a bathrobe on with two cops circling around me like sharks. That's a, that's a good way to start a story. Yeah, I, I'm really excited. So is this about... Tiffany or New Kids on the Block. <laughs> oh, man. So who is this guy and what the hell did he do? Uh, was it his music? Was it his performance? Uh, mm, the guy's known for pissing people off with both of those things. But in this case, the cops show up at his house, go through his stuff, not technically for something he created, but for something someone else created. You ready to go on a journey? As long as it's about Gigi Allen, I'm ready. <laughs> close. We're getting, we're getting close to Gigi Allen. It's not Gigi Allen. But dogs of the universe, take us there. You're Brian. in the right area of the record store. Okay. Uh, let's leave our bathrobe rock star mid-police raid for a moment. Let's leave the world of music altogether. Let's go to my second favorite pop cultural environment, and that is the world of movies. You do. You like the flicks. Uh, Big fan of them. Have you ever seen the movie Alien? I saw it when I was really young, and it freaked me the freak out. Um, and then I saw it again as a teenager in middle school when I was starting to get into sci-fi, and I was totally blown away by how much how much I really enjoyed it. And also, I enjoyed Alien versus Predator. Not really related, but I wanted to say that anyway. Did you watch the newer Predator movie? Not the newer Predator, but I watched the one before that. Yeah, man. It was good. Uh, Okay, so what freaked you out about Alien when you were small? I think I was really scared about the isolation of space. The the Alien was... I mean, that thing was kind of gross. And being chased. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Those things. So isolation, being chased. Those are all fair. That you have... The fears of a 50-year-old man when you were a small child. <laughs> How about an eight-year-old? I'm scared of dying alone. Uh, okay, so 1979, this movie comes out. It's directed by Ridley Scott, of course. It is, as you've already mentioned, sci-fi horror flick about the crew of the commercial space cruiser Nostromo, who, spoiler alert, accidentally let a crazy space creature, the titular alien, onto their vessel. Tom Skerritt is there, Sigourney Weaver is there, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, all involved. But... It's not really why you're there, right? Unless you're the 50-year-old man trapped in an eight-year-old body of Mark Murdoch. For most right. people, they're there because of the amazing space monster. Yeah, or they saw space balls and someone told them, this is a homage <laughs> to an amazing movie. Mel Brooks just put this one thing in the diner where it's, oh, no, not again. 
the look of that space creature has become iconic in movies and in pop culture. 40 plus years since, you may or may not remember this, but Alien, an Academy Award winning film, actually yes. won an Oscar for visual yeah. effects. It sure did. It really said a lot to the the genre of sci-fi at the time that they could pull an Oscar. And you know, you have to admit though, it was pretty it was a pretty epic spectacular type of movie. Like it made it made Lucas seem pretty simplistic, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. Cuz if you really think about it in those first Star Wars movies, every planet just has one type of weather. And I mean, <laughs> that's pretty simplistic. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. I like we're now somehow shitting on Star Wars on this podcast. Uh, okay, let's go. I will meet you at the desert planet, so- Obi-Wan. <laughs> I've never thought about that before. Not uh, before I meet you at the winter planet, Darth Vader. <laughs> Makes for a good video game. That's all I know. Okay, the, the man who led up the effort to scare us all in this genre-defining being the alien uh, the guy who gets to climb the stairs at the ceremony that evening in 1980 and accept that trophy from Farrah Fawcett and Johnny Carson his Ooh. name is H.R. Giger and one of my favorite artists really did we just jump into this let's talk right. let's tell me why you like H.R. Giger okay first and maybe the easiest way I could get out of this uh, Danzig How's that? That okay, happened. Okay. Okay. I thought you were going to go Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, but uh, I like that you went dancing. It was. It wasn't ever. <laughs> no. I. I learned about ELP after Danzig. Okay. And then I. I actually realized that I kind of liked him more than I liked Danzig. <laughs> and and at one and when I was when I was a when I was in high school, I had a freaking HR twelve month calendar. Are that you is kidding? how hard. Are you kidding? Um, no, I am not Brian. Okay. And December and December at last this is the last thing because it is the coup de gras, the amazing part of this freaking calendar I own. December was a thing where it had all these like figurines, however, whatever they're made of, of Jesus Christ. And Jesus was like standing like with his feet and like on the ground, hands up. And then upside down, and it was holding up a table, and it was called Christ Table, was the name <laughs> of the table. And there is a quote underneath every piece of art every month. And on December, he said, I never took drugs because I am drugs. You know, it's a good amount of self-awareness that H.R. Giger had. We could get really distracted here talking about him because... Obviously, you know a lot about him and his work. For those of you who don't, there is a lot to unpack, both personally and artistically. Uh, I've put links in the show notes if you want to go deeper, but here there are some basic things we can talk about with this fella. He's born in 1940. He's going to die in 2014. He's Swiss, and he builds a career as a painter and an artist who creates this visual style that will get termed biomechanical. Yeah. And what this means, in short, is artistically representing the human body merging into a machine. So it's similar to things you see like Cronenberg do in the movies, maybe David Lynch a little bit, right? But Giger's got his own thing, and he's he's got this muse-slash-girlfriend-slash-toxic relationship named Lee Tobler, who is incorporated into lots of his early work. And lots of this work shows a woman who is being merged into something mechanical. I I, I am sure that... 
there was a, a little bit of Lee Tobler in that calendar in your bedroom. Yes. Do you <laughs> do you know much about her? I knew about her because because she was part of that calendar and I needed to know who the woman was in the work and then I found out that it was someone that he was romantically involved. It's a scary and depressing story. Like at one point they're sort of squatting in places together. He's a little bit older than her. Um, she's got a drug habit, ends up committing suicide in the mid seventies. I very, thought he was a lot older, but I can't remember. Very yeah. codependent thing, right? Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Cause he's born in 40 and I think she dies in 75 and I don't think she's mid twenties and 75. So yeah, that, that, that puts him a good, at least a good 10 years older than her. Um, yeah. so he, here's the thing though, F- forget all that. Cause that's not what actually we're here to talk about, but you've, if you're listening right now and you have no idea what Murdoch is talking about, you cannot picture his teenage bedroom, which is probably good for all of us. You've probably Sam- seen Samantha Fox <laughs> and things. HR Giger. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> biomechanical art and British touch me models. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've, you've probably seen more HR Giger pieces uh, than you think. And you've probably seen lots of things that heavily bear his influence, especially if you dabble in horror and horror adjacent genres, which I, I find it a little surprising that you're into Giger because I know you don't love horror movies like I do. Nah, I don't. Uh, did you Not ever when you were younger? Um, no, I, I always felt really awkward watching those movies with everybody else, and it just made me kind of feel weird. And so I guess that it just that didn't work for me. So I, I liked... Yeah, I I like comedies and things, things that were safe. Yeah, um, sure. Because they it just made me feel weird. And but even now, like I don't think I would go see a horror movie. Cause yeah, I saw Blair Witch in the theater. Yeah, that was that was the last horror movie I saw. If you want to call it, buddy, that, that was twenty five years ago. <laughs> and and right, and we didn't know what it was about, and we walked in without being at all like really given any reference and it scared the shit out of oh, us. Oh dude, I loved it. I, I still I stand by Blair Witch. I every few years will rewatch it and just be like it can't be as good as it was and I I stand by it. It's great. Um yeah. okay, so if you know nothing about Giger, you'd know Alien now, right? And that is the thing that especially to Americans makes him noteworthy. He is the alien guy. He helped do that with a with the writers and with a crew of other people, but he, he gets the credit. Um, and if you think about it, okay, so biomechanical, right? The alien creature like merges with your face. So there is like some artistic through line here between his early work and what he does in alien. Now, Giger's already established when he gets this alien gig, his career started with these ink drawings that he used to do. And then he starts doing oil paintings. He's even playing with film as early as like 1968. But he hits his stride with airbrush, and that's when he starts focusing on these landscapes that are monochromatic. In 1973, way before Alien, and way before our rock friend, who we're going to talk about, is con- cornered by cops in his kitchen, Giger creates a piece of work that he calls Work 219 Landscape XX. It will go on to be known most commonly as Penis Landscape. Oh my God, this is what we're going to talk about. I'm so freaking excited. (laughs) So I'm just going to go ahead and put a warning here to say that if you have kids listening for some reason, what the hell are you doing? Secondly, it's about to get, I'm going to talk like I'm a pediatrician as much as possible when describing these things, but we're just going to have to go some places to understand this story. So fair warning. Now, 
if you look at this piece of art, and it's an easy Google, just be careful who's standing behind you. Yep. You're, you're probably not going to be sure what you're looking at at first, because as already mentioned, Giger was getting into this idea of making human things look mechanical. So I would say, and I'd be interested, since you know what we're talking about, Murdoch, like what you think it looks like on first glance, but my, I was like, oh, it's an engine, maybe. I was able to get a copy of that painting, but I got a copy of it, like a poster of it. And okay. I was very disappointed where it was like, oh, I don't think this is what I thought this was going to mean. <laughs> and it was, it was very, it was, uh, and it was just, I didn't know whether I was going to get like two live crews, like, or what. <laughs> it's like, not, what it's was, not that. It's not sexy and it's not meant it, to be sexy. It, right. And it's, and it's nothing at all what, you what you're expecting if you're expecting to be horrified or something well if if you are taking anything from the title you might have guessed that it does involve a series of penises do we call them peni in the plural i don't know uh, i don't think so those penises are entering vaginas like i said i'm going to talk about this like a like a medical professional there's an overwhelming amount of penetration happening at weird angle and it becomes important to the story, so I have to point this out. There are nine sets of genitalia in this painting, and only one is wearing a condom. Also, very realistic painting. As we talk about this, you'll understand that some people think they're looking at a photograph when they see this because it is so realistic because Giger's pretty good at his job. Now, it's pretty good. It's important to understand art in its context, and some of the literal context here involves a series. So, like I said, this is called Work 219. There are several that go with it and around it, and it goes with these grotesque interpretations of babies and other elements of the sex act. Now, you can go read in the show notes a piece that has some quotes from an interview with him about this series, but in summary, Giger kind of has this worldview about overpopulation. And he thinks many of the world's evils are a product of there being too many of us, which seems like a very dangerous line of thinking, but we're going to leave that there. It's not what we're here to talk about. So that's where he's coming from when he creates this. But this painting is part of this larger work of art and is going to be displayed in galleries and museums and so forth. Of course, it's happening in Europe, not in America in the 70s. But 1973 is when he does this, right? And now we're going to fast forward 12 years through Giger's alien experience and through the Oscar win and into the heart of the Reagan 80s in America. And we're going to go to a guy named John Greenway. He's the connective tissue to this story. John Greenway. Okay, keep so going. he sees Giger's art, and it seems to him like something he needs to show his best buddy and his roommate, who are the same person. It's this kid named Eric. When he was in first grade... He met this kid. They were both new at this school, and they started getting in trouble together. And when they get older, they'll move to San Francisco, and they'll live together. They're in a band together for a little bit. And then Eric gets a different band. He, he works his way into this band. He answers an ad. And John helps him write lyrics for the first song that ever becomes a single from that band. And then throughout their career, John will contribute art and album titles as the band gets bigger. Um, but one day, as this band is pretty established and they're actually working on their third record at this point, John will grab Eric and show him a copy of Omni Magazine where they are featuring the artwork of H.R. Giger. So for full context, we should talk about this little band that Eric is in. He joined it in 1978 because he saw this ad. Like I said, a guy named Ray took out looking for band members. And over the next seven years, they will form a record label so that they can put out their own tunes. They will piss off a lot of people. They will make mm -hmm. two albums and an EP, 
and send a potential major label deal and the BBC into a tizzy because they release a single. Again, I'm just going to have to say this, guys, so earmuffs. A single called Too Drunk to Fuck. We are, of course, talking about Dead Kennedys. Tell me about your love of the Dead Kennedys. Um, God, I mean, I'm so gl- all the bands that got me away from hair metal. I'm so grateful for. <laughs> I mean, for sure. I once the Dead Kennedys for me are the are the band that other people talk about when they discover a band that there's things that they're saying that you really identify with about things being completely wrong, where there's things wrong with religion and things wrong with politics and things on how people are treated and things about how certain people are certain people are terrible people. Yeah. And he'll Um, call them out by name. I am Emperor Ronald Reagan. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. Alexander Haig is here. It, you Absolutely. Know, like I said, as much as Dead Kennedys are known for being punk rock forefathers and, and founders in the American scene, I mean, part of that is not just the musical part, right? It's the attitude. It's the prov- provocation that they peddle in. And this story is about the provocation that they peddle in. Let's just go ahead and go back to Eric for a second. Obviously, he doesn't use that name anymore. Everyone at this point now call him Jello Biafra. Boulder, Colorado. Yeah, he is from Boulder. I saw that and I was like, does Murdoch know he's from Boulder? Uh, So there's plenty of stuff we could get stuck on if we want to talk to Ed Kennedy's. Because like you already pointed out, like huge influence, lots of people are emotionally attached because they were a huge turning point for them. But to get to the meat of this story, you need to know basically just this fact. They are very aggressive and not afraid to ruffle feathers or be political, if you can't tell by the name. And when John shows Jello, this magazine of Giger's art, Jello's in the middle of helping create the third Dead Kennedys album. And they're going to end up calling it something that John suggests, which is Frankenchrist. And he's starting to realize that this whole record is becoming about how pissed off he is about Reagan's America. And when he sees Work 219, Landscape XX in particular, when he sees that only one of the nine penises is wearing a condom, while Giger might have been talking about overpopulation, Jello sees a commentary on the president. To him, this reckless selfishness is indicative of the current American attitude. Everybody's out to fuck everybody else. And he wants to incorporate this art into the new record. So he That's... gets the permission he needs to include the artwork from Giger's camp. They charge him 600 bucks, which is <laughs> half of what they normally charge because they like the idea. And now the question becomes, how? How do we use this art? So he goes to the band. I'd like to imagine this band meeting. East Bay Ray is there. <laughs> the other guys are, are all hanging out. Celebi offers there. Um, and there are different versions of how they want to do this. First, they say, what if we do a double LP gatefold cover? And when you open it up, wow. boom, it hits you, right? 
did they talk about shrink wrapping it with a solid shrink wrap like Pink Floyd did? Yeah. And both of those things are just cost prohibitive because these guys, again, like I said, started their own record label. It's called Alternative Tentacles. Yeah. And, and they're putting out their own music, so they don't have somebody piping them money. So everything's on a shoestring. Great roster, by the way. They had a great roster of bands on Alternative Tentacles and a great comp they put out at one point of all the, all the bands. Anyway, keep going. So then they're talking about this with the distributor. And the distributor's like, if you put this anywhere near the front cover, there's no way we can distribute this. Like, it's just not going to work. Nobody's going to take it from us. So this is what they come up with. They compromise and they choose to produce it as a small piece of art that they put as an insert into the record. And while Jello was initially keen on including this art without explanation, you know, he just sort of wants people to noodle on it on their own, they end up putting a warning on the record. And it says, the inside fold-out to this record is a work of art by H.R. Giger that some people may find shocking, repulsive, or offensive. Life can sometimes be that way. I mean, it's great. Now, how the hell does this all lead to Jello being surrounded by cops while wearing a bathrobe? How do I mean that? That feels like a zero to sixty moment. Uh, let's get a little cultural context. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I love talking about rock and roll history. Not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health, but if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. I'm going to say, here's something we, I think we're going to have to start doing. We're, we're over 100 episodes of this show, and it's yeah. becoming a little self-referential. And so... I'll put this in the show notes, and honestly, like I said, this this may become part of the show notes going forward, where we say, like, here are the other episodes that are in this universe, if you want to go deeper. But there's a few episodes that will be very helpful in complementing this story. So I would say, if you like the show and you haven't listened to the back catalog, you might want to check these out. If you want to refresh, check these out. Number one is episode 28, Wasp versus the PMRC. You get all the background of the PMRC who are important to this story. Secondly, episode 55, ACDC versus the Night Stalker. That's fun because it happens around the same time. And oh, to a lesser, a lesser and broader degree, episode 36 is called Rock and Roll versus Satanic Messages. Oh, so good. All of these episodes highlight this time period, 1985. Some specific things were happening and being mashed together in the public consciousness. To, to just give you the cliff notes, Satan, serial killers, and aggressive music. And the, yeah. P, the PMRC is... Uh, oh, it's Tipper Gore first... 
It's it's the mid '80s effort uh, with the stated goal of increasing parental control over the access of children to music that might be violent, drug related, or sexual. And and it's it's why we have the parental advisory stickers, right? It's the to pop put up. this. It's to it's to put the stickers on on the yeah. on the art. That's what it's about. Yeah, the committee was actually founded by four women known as the Washington Wives because all their yes. husbands had connections to the government, and most of them directly to Reagan. Do you know? Fun fact: I cannot remember if we talked about this in that episode about the PMRC. Do you know who bankrolled the PMRC? Mike Love from the Beach Boys. And oh my God, Joseph Good. Coors of Coors Beer. Wow. So that Bud Light, guys. What I'm saying is Bud Light. I heard a whole satanic panic thing real recently that talked about those four ladies. And I've already forgot all of them except for Tipper. But it was about them. And it was super, super fascinating. I've spent all the time with John Denver actually being there and, and speaking. And, of course, the D. Snyder bit where he, he speaks to. But actually hearing how those how this all came about and came to be is pretty weird. I remember, I remember as a kid, I was like, what, 11? And so I remember thinking like, well, this is, this is broad government overreach. No, I didn't. And I was like, <laughs> why are you wanting to put a sticker on my fucking Motley Crue record, you buttholes? I was thinking. Uh, so this is all happening concurrently with Jello Biafra's effort to put shocking art into his liner notes to make a political statement about Reagan. And I mean, he's sort of, making a political statement about the kind of people who would want to sit around and make rules about what songs are appropriate to. Uh, there's this bonkers all press interview from last year with Jello. He's promoting a new record and all press says in the, in the notes at the beginning of this, that they actually had to put it into two different articles because he talked so much during the interview and it's, they call it monologuing It was 15,000 word transcript in the middle of this interview he goes nuts about religious fundamentalism. It's all just sort of like stream of consciousness. And specifically, he brings up these comic books that were made by this guy named Jack Chick. I thought I was the only person that knew about this. I felt very seen when I read this. I sent this to Murdoch. Didn't tell him the context of what I was researching. I just said... I'd never heard of this before. It was totally weird. I, I was like, I know you don't know about this but you got to read this article. It's a Vox article from 2016. It is in the show notes if you want to go check it out. It's not actually what we're here to talk about, but this is a guy who basically made his career. He was a hermit. He didn't like do interviews or anything after like 1975. Lived until like 2015 or something. Um, but he he had this very specific sort of graphic novel style. He was like a, a forerunner, forefather of, of that style and that energy, but he used all of his talent to make these religious tracks that were meant to convert people and they were absolutely wackadoodle. Uh, and a lot of them were very like, so the most famous one, it was really funny because I, a couple of friends of mine that I know who grew up in fundamental households, I was like, sent that article. And one of them was like, dude, I specifically remember this track where, and this was before he read the article. He's like, I remember this track where, this kid like goes to heaven and they pull out a projector and they show all of his sins on a big projector screen to everybody that's standing around. And I was like, that's a great black mirror episode. Yeah, it sure <laughs> or is. it's just I'll social media on a Friday. I don't know. But and then in this article, I would go on to read the article and they mention that in the article, they say it's probably his most well-known comic. Um, anyway, it's crazy. I bring yeah. this up because Jello brings this up in this interview out of nowhere. He's like, there was this guy, Jack chick. And he says, He's like, I knew in the 80s, 
I'm not overreacting was basically what he was saying, right? He was saying like, I know that if, if the right people get in charge, crazy things will happen to the freedom of speech. Crazy things will happen to our personal freedoms. And this is worth fighting for to me. And, and he says, I knew that because I knew that this guy, Jack Chick, was serious. And I was being fed these things as a kid. The article's fascinating because they talk to all these people who, have, who grew up with him. And uh, I just, I was like, I had no idea that other people knew these things existed. Like, I thought it was just this weird dark hole in this Christian school library that I went to. Um, but they were all over. And now there's people who, like, non-religiously collect them because of the art. Um, you can go to Comic-Cons and stuff and, and find people with, like, full collections of them because they're just sort of an oddity. But, man, you wouldn't believe hey, it. An oddity. When you shared it with me, I was like, "This is the craziest shit I've ever seen." I, I know, like, because it's all alien to me, and I'm like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. It, it was just, it was way, way bizarre world so, for so me. Jello's point is, he knew he wasn't overreacting. His point was sort of, one day I might just be sitting at home in my bathrobe and have nine cops break a window and bust into my house, <laughs> and that is exactly what happened to him. Now, what led to it? More specifically, Brian, like I know you keep saying this is all sort of setting the stage, but for that, for the actual preceding events, we have to tell a very sweet sibling story. I know we've we've talked quite a bit about the influence your older sister was on your musical experience as a kid. Did, right. Did she ever give you a, an album for Christmas? Maybe uh, maybe I got Sergeant Pepper from her. Okay. I think that's actually probably okay. true. You, you, you didn't get Frank and Christ. I did not get Frank and Christ from my sister. <laughs> well, no. There was an 11 year old boy in LA County who that year for Christmas did receive a pretty dope present from his 14 year old sister. She had gone to Warehouse Records and bought a copy of Frank and Christ for her little brother. And I, I guess he just made the bad decision of opening while still under the Christmas tree. I'm not sure exactly what went down. But imagine he pops this thing open. Uh, the front of it, if you've never seen the front of Frankenkreis, what they decided to do was put a picture of Shriners in their little Shriner cars. So very inoffensive until the insert falls out on the floor at Christmas. And uh. The mother of these two sees this Giga reproduction, and I'm imagining her eyes bulge out of her head. And she packs it up in an envelope with a complaint letter, and she sends it off to the L.A. Attorney General and L.A. Prosecutors. And suddenly, Jello Biafra has nine cops breaking his windows. A great diffuser piece on this story includes this paragraph. Biafra recalled being asked, and this is when they're in his house, where's the guy who did this? And he, he was like, in Switzerland. <laughs> he says, I was scared for my life, but after two and a half hours, quote, they had what they wanted. Three copies of Frankenchrist, three extra posters, and my private mail. So, What's the charge that would cause this sort of intense reaction from the LAPD? Violating the California Penal Code in regards to giving something obscene to a minor. Yeah, that's what they got. Uh-huh. I remember. Which yeah. is, wait for it, a misdemeanor. Yeah, that, so you need a lot of cops for that. So you need a lot of cops and a brick, and, and you need to force your way into someone's house over a misdemeanor. Uh, maximum penalty, if found guilty, a year in county lockup, and a fine of $2,000. Nine cops and a brick. Just saying. Okay, so. How'd that work out for Jello? Well, there's actually charges leveled against a bunch of people at first. Ruth Schwartz, 
who is the owner of Mortem Records and is involved. Steve Boudreau, who was a distributor, who was supplying Frankenchrist to the warehouse store. Wow. Uh, Salvatore Alberti, who was the owner of the factory where the record was pressed. Gosh. But all those get dismissed. And after this long tale of the legal process draws this thing out for an insufferable amount of time, you end up with Jello Biafra and Michael Bonanno, who is the former Alternative Tentacles label manager, standing trial. Because remember, Jello and Ted Kennedy's decided to get their music out on their own. They literally go DIY, so when they get sued, they get sued as the label, as the people putting it out, not just as the band. Yeah. So it's... Here, here's the thing. If you if you talk to people about this now, they'll say this was never supposed to go to trial. From the perspective of LA prosecutors and the attorney general, this was about making an example of someone who would not stick around to fight it because they didn't have deep enough pockets. And then they would have legal precedence. Yep. So of course. I've been talking about this with my kids recently about all of the decisions the Supreme Court is making, right? About the complicated layers of this, right? It's not just there people are making laws and say you can or can't do this, right? It's all about legal precedents. It's about undoing precedents and redoing precedents, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what this was about. Dead Kennedys didn't have deep pockets, but these stupid attorneys clearly had never listened to a Dead Kennedys record. And actually, they'll say it. They'll say they'd never listened to a Dead Kennedys record. Uh, Jell and his band were clearly not the people to pick if you were looking for somebody to roll over. <laughs> no. So here's a, here's a quote. This is coming out of that, uh, that diffuser piece. Our case was one of half a dozen designed to bend the law so that anyone in the distribution chain could be prosecuted for obscenity, said Biafra. Up until now, the Supreme Court had only upheld hands-on distributors, so people the cash register who sell Hustler to a 17-year-old. The way they want to set it up now is that anyone within sniffing distance can get convicted. How can I make an album if everyone's afraid to work with me because they might get busted? He tells so. MTV in 97 this, quote, I think they assumed I was some Sid Vicious idiot who would plead guilty and pay a $50 fine and then they could use that precedent against major label artists. In other words, let's bash a small independent in hopes of getting rid of Ozzy and Judas Priest and Prince. This case basically bankrupts Alternative Tentacles. And it breaks up Dead Kennedys before it ever goes to trial. Right. Yeah. And and it really it really left a it really I mean it fractured the band. And it's not stopping Jello. Even all of that collateral damage, he has to start the no more censorship defense fund so that he can follow it all the way through. So people are sending him money pre the days of things like uh, GoFundMe. Super PAC. On the other side is a youngish lawyer. Dude's not even forty yet. His name's Michael Garino. And I think this guy sees this as his ticket in Reagan's America. Let's let's stop for a second and talk about, you know, like I grew up in this household that co- sort of acted like the media and Hollywood and all these things were always and and just the general society. Anything outside of the church was really in the clutches of Satan, and everything was very liberal. Right, But if you actually go back and look, even at pop culture at this time in the mid-80s, <laughs> it's not the case. It's very Republican. Let's talk just briefly about Back to the Future 2. <laughs> Do you remember the plot of Back to the Future 2? 
Man, I've just I've just watched them all again, so I, I should, yeah. I do love those movies. And and do you remember the plot of Back to the Future 2 is <laughs> trying to stop a casino from getting built and ruining the world. Oh, yeah, that is right. That's literally the plot. So Reagan's America, a very conservative place. And <laughs> so it was a very conservative place. This guy thinks he's got his way of making his name. And he tries all all sorts of stuff. At one point, and this is why I mentioned the ACDC episode. At one point, he compares Jello to Richard Ramirez, <laughs> the Night Stalker, the serial killer. He literally makes a comparison, and that's that. It's just I, I point that out because you got to understand the tenor of the day. The, the panic, that satanic panic, and just sort of the overall what could threaten our general prosperity. The jury comes back deadlocked, seven to five, in favor of acquittal. Greeno tries to get Judge Susan Isakoff to deem it a mistrial, but she literally says, quote, I'm not interested in developing a trial and error procedure for the prosecution, and she closes the trial. So the precedent they're trying to set is not to be set. But as is the case in most of these situations, the guy trying to fight the legal system ends up getting the short end, even when he wins, because he's run out of money. He's had to start his own legal defense fund. And as he puts it in 1989 in an interview, did we win? Huh. The battle, maybe, but not the war. The war is getting worse. Watch what the religious right will try to do to your schools. Watch for them to try to shut down cool record stores or college radio stations. And as Frank Zappa puts it, don't let them govern by telling people what they don't like. Go out and tell them what you do like. It's all pretty creepy. <laughs> A few postscripts. Jello doesn't let this drop. And in 1990, it will lead to one of the most blissfully odd TV appearances ever. When he joins a panel of Ice-T and Tipper Gore and a few others, to talk about censorship on The Oprah Winfrey Show. Yeah, it's on YouTube, people. Yeah, it's in the show notes, and you will watch it as soon as you're done listening to this, because it's worth it. Uh, Jello also doesn't stay out of court, but the next time he shows up in the 90s, it's his band members that are suing him over royalties, and this will end his time in that band. I mean, that band was over, but he will never go back. Yeah. Um, interestingly, interestingly, long before... I was ever working on this episode a few months ago. Dead Kennedys were in town at my favorite club. And I called Murdoch and said, dude, are we going to see Dead Kennedys? And he said, nah, no. <laughs> no. And then I'd say, I saw some live performance footage and I was like, yeah, I probably don't want to see him now. But uh, they are still touring East Bay Ray. And he's got, he, it's actually a good chunk of like the early 80s version of Dead Kennedys now. Um, but of course, Jello is nowhere to be seen. Yeah, Circle Jerks are touring, and it's basically the same band except the drummer. And Circle Jerks come out of Dead Kennedys. If you want to draw that line, right? Explain sure, that. absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, so finally, in two thousand five, uh, This American Life will do an episode that features a segment about this case. And in that, and this is also in the show notes, you can go listen to the audio. Michael Garino the hotshot lawyer trying to make a name for himself in Reagan's America says he realized halfway through that he was on the wrong side of history. Wow. Pretty powerful stuff. 
Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's pretty cool. As far as the involvement of the PR, the PMRC, I, I actually don't think they really had anything to do with this directly. Jello sort of always thinks they did, and he will yell at Tipper Gore about this on Oprah. But I think the timing and the proximity makes them look like the guilty party. But really, this is like L.A. County prosecutors going to town. You're right. It's totally. Yeah, it's completely like uh, another like prosecutor AG or something has nothing to do with the Washington wives. But where does this leave our old friend H.R. Giger? Well, besides Mark Murdoch's childhood bedroom wall. Uh, he is not hurting for business or cultural relevance. Relevance. You already mentioned that he did other album covers and such, but did you know that Jonathan Davis from the band Korn commissioned Geiger to sculpt that microphone stand? Yes, sir, I did. A long time ago, and he's been using it forever. Well, you pay for that. So he had had to make five, and he bought three of them. So he has three of them. Oh, that's interesting about three of the five. Yeah, so he's he's been using that forever. Also, you're a gear guy. You ever played an Ibanez HR uh, Giger signature model? No, but I've seen I've seen a picture of one. Are they cool? Uh, I, I guess I don't know. Like <laughs> things that are just sort of like gimmicky or weird. It's sort of uh, see, I'm just a little more meat and potatoes for. It's like, does it sound good? Yeah. I don't know. As for the penis landscape, you know that. All things rock and roll bedtime stories can usually be traced back to one of two artists. And this story is no exception. How do you feel about the Kiss song, You Make Me Rock Hard? <laughs> it's it's one of their worst. <laughs> if I can if I can just do a dramatic interpretation for everyone. Please. I'll you make me rock hard hard baby all night loves like a glove and it fits just right or or it's tight or whatever it's that's what the two that's that's it dude i saw a facebook post recently of a woman who said to hide her kids and hide her wives because the new beyonce single is incredibly degrading and dirty and i was like immediately googled the lyrics as anyone would after reading that facebook post and i would just wanted to reply in the comments to that facebook post with a link to all kiss lyrics (laughs) all all kiss lyrics okay so why did i bring up kiss just Beyond the fact that I wanted you to, you know, give us a a dramatic (laughs) reading. So during the making of the video for that song, the the production's going in for close-ups on Gene Simmons. And they realize in post-production, well, they realize in the editing booth, I guess, that he had penis landscape laminated on the front of his base. And they are like, listen, we can't do that. We're never going to get this video played anywhere. So production calls for Band-Aids. And oh, my God. And they take Band-Aids. This and is they, not true. This is 100% true. They Band-Aid over the picture. The Band-Aids can be seen in the music video in medium shots because... Any close-up shot of his base, they had to edit out because the band-aids didn't cover it enough. They did not think it was adequate enough. So did the, they put the cover, the band-aids over the genitalia? It just over the entire painting, from what I understand. 
Because I don't think it was very big. He just laminated it onto his base. And this wasn't 85. That was a little later. No, this is 88. So this is is after the court. I mean, this is clearly in reference to the court case, because the court case would have just happened at the end of 87. It happens in August of 87. Yeah, that is right. So, Gene Simmons, you know, making all the money and being sort of provocative, unlike Jello Biafra, who just Uh, was provocative and didn't make any of the money. You know, the most disappointing thing about Kiss that I ever saw in person is I got to see Gene and Paul, like, at this thing, like, talking. with. There was, like, uh, I don't know, 200 people around, and the lights were hitting, hitting Gene's hair just enough that I could see the bobby pins that were that had his <laughs> that had wig attached. And I was like, ah, this is so not, it's not rock and roll to be an English teacher. Oh man! Um, all right. Well, there's there's plenty of fun to be had in the show notes. Like I said, if you want to watch the Oprah broadcast, if you want to read that crazy alt press interview from last year with Jello, if you want to read about Jack Chick, if you want to learn about H.R. Giger and that really messed up relationship he had early in his career with his muse, all of that is in the show notes, and you can get involved in the show too. Just send us an email. It's so uh, we are the story guys at Gmail. Dot com. Awesome. And everybody, you know what you should keep doing until next time? Pay tribute to our Lord and money unto us and keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.